welcome back to another episode of Bits and Bites Season 2. We are now on our second episode with a special guest, Angel. Um, and today, uh, we are going to be experimenting a little bit. So today we got a cold dish. A cold noodle yes. dish, which is not very common since, you know, most of us would assume noodles come in like a hot broth or in a warmer temperature. But with the heat wave in Vancouver, we have decided to cool off a little bit with this uh, pretty unique dish. Um, so what we have here is called the makkuksu. Um, we'll post a photo of this for those of you that are watching. Um, essentially, makkuksu is a Korean noodle dish that uses buckwheat noodles. Um, and then it is uh, used, uh, sorry, <laughs> there is um, vegetables such as carrots, cabbage, onions, lettuce. Um, and then there's also some seaweed as well as sesame seeds and certain variations of it. And it is mixed together with a chili pepper sauce. Um, <laughs> mm. Sometimes it does come in a colder broth, but usually this is served very chill and it's a very refreshing summer dish that is really popular in Korea. Another fun fact about this, uh, the word mak actually means anything. So in translation, it means anything noodles because um, the different variations, everyone likes to have their own type of uniqueness added to it. So some like to add in uh, a different variety of vegetables. Um, so we're just going to give it a try here and give us our <laughs> first impressions on this. <laughs> you don't eat spicy, do you? I do not. And I remember telling my host. Uh, <laughs> I thought this I was a full-on prank. No, like, it's not a prank. But I thought we were going to get hot soup for you because it's like 32 at the time of recording. It's actually 36 back home. How is it? It is not hitting me yet, but it's, oh, it's about to. <laughs> so you don't need any spicy. Mm -mm. No level of spice. Okay. No level of spice. Zero. Okay. Well, we got a pitcher of water here. Good thing I already got some water here. <sighs> Ooh. It's, it's okay. good, I though. I don't eat it's vegetables, good. so. Mm. <laughs> We're even. Oh, yeah, it can get spicy. Mm -hmm, I can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Clearing my sinus. <laughs> it's another can, way to beat the heat. It. And, and we do want to apologize because it's been it's been a minute since we had uh, we had an episode. Actually, we we had some some lots of different stuff. issues. Ooh. I mean, I had COVID. You had COVID. <laughs> <laughs> lots of different things have happened. Mm -hmm. We met each other on the East Coast as well. There's a whole thing there. Uh, maybe we'll get to talk a little bit about um, it during the the show, but the, the East Coast COVID run. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the the <laughs> NFT NYC variant, um, as I'm calling it. But how's how's your first couple of bites? Have you had this type of food before? I have not. I I do like cold noodle though, yeah. like the, the zaozoba. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is yeah definitely good for summer. Yeah. yeah, I know that there's also like a variation with like buckwheat noodles that uses like an actual cold broth. They put ice in there. Mm. That was actually the original noodle dish I was looking for, mm. but not many Until places Sam have it. Delivery. Angel does not eat spicy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to put you on a little bit on the hot seat here, Ooh. so <laughs> you'll be all right. Sure, doing good job. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So yeah, I mean personally, I. I love Korean food, being Korean myself. And, <laughs> but this is a different type of noodle I've actually never had. I've always had the um, different buckwheat noodles called naengmyeon. 
that comes in yep. the soup, or there's like a dry version with the thinner buckwheat noodles. So I thought we were doing nice that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I was saying. I was trying to get that one, but I yep. don't know. Not many places deliver it. I'm assuming because you need the ice bags. I think. Yeah, yeah, the mm. ice is really important for it's that. Tasty dish. though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have more. You can have less. We're, we're gonna start talking. We'll we'll gauge your your spice level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we're in the corner there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're five minutes in. Why don't you just kind of introduce yourself to to everybody? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Angel. As you know by now, I have a very kit like palate when it comes to food. <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've always been in tech startup for the last fifteen years. Um, that aged me a little bit, and yeah. Okay, what I have a, I have a kid like palate. Your yours is you just don't do spicy food. <laughs> no, I actually I like noodle. I like sugar. I like eggs. I eat the Together? same thing as my kids. My husband actually said I have three girls. It's true. Interesting, because uh, I get all my food tips from my buddy who has a six year old, and everything he suggests I like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so. Like, like Ray was laughing at me earlier this week because I had Jolly Bees two days in a row. What, oh, yes. what I didn't tell Fried him chicken. is I had Popeyes in between that. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sam's uh, obsession with fried chicken too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, your husband's in health, so and you know we'll get to that. <laughs> we, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, how about this? Let's kind of take start a little sip bit. Of water. Yeah, of course. <laughs> take as many sips as you need here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just want to kind of start off because you know, you know, mentioned that you were in tech for about fifteen years, and so that's a very long journey so far. But I know that you know it started off in you know wanting to get into tech, but then I believe you made a really big pivot during um, after you graduated high school. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, as a kid, my dad, uh, you know, engineering and, and entrepreneur, my, my family has been an entrepreneur, like grandpa runs a factory in China. And then my dad, you know, was doing computer mechanical engineering and then is an engineer himself. So it's just something that I'm exposed to as a kid. I remember running around my grandpa's factory as a kid and seeing my dad and my uncle all work. And so as a kid, grade seven, I would be building these supercomputers with my dad and taking out, you know, the boards and, you know, writing scripts for macro for my Street Fighter. And we actually developed this programmable joystick for Street Fighter. Um, And then my dad took it and, you know, sell it to Logitech and Alienware. So I was one of those kids, you know, I would run scripting when I was playing my mud game um, and, 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 and did, you know, C++, MS-DOS, and computer science when I was in high school. And I was doing really well in school, right? Like even AP physics and all that until I hung out with the wrong crowd, (laughs) a bunch of girls who said, oh, you don't want to be in computer science, do you? Like that's for... That's for boys. So peer pressure or or the right kind, right? Like you should follow your dream, which was, you know, I also draw and I was super creative as well. They encouraged me to drop my computer science nerdiness and said, why don't you go to art? You know, like you love drawing. Let's develop that. So I took a hard left and went to fashion design rather than my scholarship to computer science. Well, and I'm here being very impressed with myself for, you know, like the... Uh, 
Zenga days, you know, when you can use uh, <laughs> you can edit the screen out. So you'll really probably she was, animation. She was going. if Tony Stark went to fashion school. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yes. amazing. My parents were very disappointed. Mm-hmm. They didn't speak to me for years, but wow. but yeah. And this was why... But they're like, speaking to me now, so that's all I matter, right? <laughs> you did high school in Vancouver, right? I did high school, yeah. Yes. Churchill, secondary. Gotcha. Wow. West Side Girl. Are there Churchill fans out there? I was like, <laughs> I, I, I was, like, was going to make a fun of their school name, but I was like, I don't even know it. <laughs> Suburban boy. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's also an additional story that I would love to get into maybe later on about, you know, having your parents just decide, you know, going no contact because of a decision you made for your own personal future. Like... Do you think that kind of in a way impacted like the direction that you decided to go after fashion school? Like where did you go um, once you finished fashion school? Once I finished fashion school, I had 60,000 student loan because I went to London um, (laughs) of all places to do fashion. Um, And it's obviously expensive for an international student. And you are, you know, you have to live there for two years. And like they predicted, I wasn't going to get this amazing job like I would have if I went to Waterloo and get picked up by BlackBerry. So instead of a, you know, internship at fashion, I moved back to Vancouver. And then here at the time, fashion, there was just kind of a Ritzy and Lululemon that you could apply. And it wasn't really fashion that I was designing. I was very much about the hook couture, the really fantastical stuff. So... I couldn't do any of that stuff. So I actually started sewing wedding dresses um, because that's when someone would come in with their vision and, you know, how they want a dress and they would actually want a custom made gown, which was what I what I was doing. And so that's how I got into wedding, which ended up being my first startup. And so as I was kind of sewing wedding dresses. I needed to pay off my student loan. So then I was working at Holt Renfrew doing, you know, visual design for the window, again, trying to use up my degree that I got and also started coding websites for people. Mm-hmm. It was like the early days of Shopify where people wanted website, but then they don't know how to do it. And then I built it on the side and actually made more money than I did sewing wedding dresses and 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 working retail. So what were your like some of your classmates doing like was it a big class in london or oh yeah huge yeah so i went to central st martin which was one of the biggest school and most of the classmates i know were you know jill sonder blanchiaga they all got internship this is the rite of passage is internship it's mm-hmm. kind of like when you come out of a school and all the company come and pick off all the fresh grad yeah yeah but internship does not pay unpaid internship unpaid internship. yes you work your way up yeah. Was that why you decided, you know what, I need to get back to Vancouver and try to get back on my feet here? I need to get to Vancouver because I was literally eating canned tuna and like Seven <laughs> oh Eleven crackers. It was that poor. You're, li- you're living the startup <laughs> life without the startup. <laughs> yes. And I have no family and I couldn't pay the rent. Like I was forced to come home. And the elephant in the room is it's London. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot be broke there alone. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been a very intense time. So um, you mentioned that this did end up leading to building out your first startup. So Mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit more about what your first startup is and how did what was the Eureka moment or what was the moment like, hey, I can make a app out of this or I can make a product that's weddings. I was sewing wedding dresses and Mm -hmm. like a hairstylist. 
the bride to be would come and, you know, they got this amazing vision for what they want for that wedding day, usually nine months later. And like a hairdresser, you're, you know, draping them, measuring, tucking and, you know, snipping. And so over the nine months, they would come in, right? Oh, I would like this. Oh, actually, no more sweetheart neckline I want, turtleneck, whatever it might be. And I noticed they would all be this, you know, inspiring bride-to-be. And then by the time they're picking up the dress, which is usually weeks before the wedding, they're melting down, stressed out, and go, oh, I just want it over with. Mm -hmm. So I started noticing there's a need. And then between those sessions, they would come in going, oh, my mother-in-law just added guest list. You know, this bridesmaid is freaking out. Oh, I, I, you know, and then I noticed it was miscommunication, planning issues, can't find the right vendor, vendor bailing. So like any good old entrepreneur, you see a problem, you want to solve it. And, you know, with my tiny bit of coding experience, because obviously I didn't go to the proper <laughs> school, um, I, you know, just put together this prototype with an actual developer. And it was the first mm -hmm. version was like a Google Drive. Because mm -hmm. by then, at that point, you know, 2005 or six, there were no Google Drive yet, right? Like you couldn't share a document, you couldn't share a spreadsheet, you couldn't collaborate easily. So that was first version. It was called My Wedding Notes. And then people can add their bridesmaid, add their in-laws um, and, and their partner, of course, and they could choose vendor, upload guest list, manage budget and all of that. And the first startup, my wedding notes, I didn't even know what a startup was because I didn't go to a tech school. And so I was just kind of in my basement doing my coding thing. And there was this prototype, launched it, got featured by InStyle Weddings, got 4,000 or might have been 5,000, but I can't remember the exact number now. Like there were some traction and brides were using it and people were paying. <clears throat> and the first go at it, I didn't raise any money or anything. I literally didn't even know there's such a thing called startup. I just thought I was just making something for someone. Hmm. Until one day I met Mike Tan, who is my savior of them all. And I, I just went into this meetup and, um, and there were tables and banners and he was showing on his laptop team pages. And it was a collaborative tool for people to collaborate sports. And I remember standing next to the booth going, oh, my God, first of all, there are other people like me. You know, <laughs> this is my crew. Um, I thought I was just doing it myself. But they were all, you know, there were I, I forgot the event's name now, but there were maybe 20 to 30 of these tables and everyone got their little laptop and their banner. And I remember meeting him for the first time going, oh, this is what I was building for wedding and you're building for teams. And we, you know, hit it off, had coffee after. And then when. We sat down for coffee. He said, you should get funding. There's a startup community. You're not <laughs> alone. You know, find yourself a co-founder. And I remember just being inspired that there are other people like me. I'll just put a pause on this. If, if you were, <laughs> if you had any disposable income, you're in your 20s to 30s during the 2010s, you would have used Weddingful. You would have used Team Pages. Um, because these are like you're talking about it like yesteryear, but I'm like I lived through that, and Jane's like I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, you know that. So fast forwarding a few years, uh, you know, twenty two thousand nine, I believe, was when I finally took the idea 
Mike introduced me to Boris Wirtz. He, at the time and still is, the best investor here in BC funding, you know, mission-driven founders. And I remember my eyes were completely focused on him because he knew two-sided marketplace. He sold his company to Amazon, and he was the one that knew how to grow a a two-sided marketplace. So, you know, it took me, I think, a year and a half to finally get him to say yes to my funding. And then he did, and I moved into the—and I remember telling him that, first of all, it's money that I need, but secondly— his mentorship. So on my term sheet of what I wanted, I said, I want to be in your office. And I got it. Literally for the first two years, I had my desk right up against his in the same, you know, like in the same room with the door closed. Like I could hear all his conversation. All the founder that came in pitching him was sitting next to me and I would put my little headphone on, but really I'm listening. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So it was the best experience, like to be so close to an amazing investor, to just live through every founder coming in, learning everything I could on two-sided marketplace. Like I got my money's worth. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And just to just to mention, so in the show notes here, we're going to link Boris Wartz to this day with uh, his company, Version One Ventures. Mm-hmm. Still releases, I think it's like annual or biannual. Um, it's like a guide to how to build a two-sided marketplace. Um, and he's updated for annual, 2021, yeah. 2022, whatever it is. It is it is the textbook, right, of, yeah. of two-sided marketplaces. So yeah. we're going to leave the link there. You can, you can download it and read it. If you're listening to this. And you're building a two-sided marketplace or a three-sided. I don't. I don't know how many sides there are these days. Um, he make sure you is get the there. yeah. He knows everything about two-sided marketplace. <clears throat> and yes, that guidebook is the bible. Awesome. I actually, I'm kind of curious. So you mentioned that it took him a year to accept your proposal. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> that means a year of unaccepted of proposals as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I see a question here about <laughs> the extreme difficulty starting your. I yeah. That that was tough. Um, mm-hmm. I'm this gal from fashion design. I mean, gosh, if I did graduate computer science from Waterloo, I'm sure that one year would have been three months. But I had a fashion design background. I am an unknown in the startup community, right? I didn't even know, and I didn't have a co-founder. And my code is crap. Like, <laughs> obviously, I'm not set up <laughs> to be to be funded. Um, I remember going to meet him for the first time, and I had a napkin that did the math of my two-sided marketplace. So I was not good at metrics. I didn't even come prepare with a pitch deck. I didn't even know what a pitch deck was. Um, so yeah, it. but I had passion. I remember him yeah, uh, ending the meeting with, you're not ready for funding, mm-hmm. but I could see your passion. I could see your raw potential. Why don't you, you know, develop your idea further, launch your prototype, see how many people sign up and we'll talk again. Like what a typical VC, you know, would tell you. And I took that and I remember just, and because I was so, you know, my blind, my blind blinders were on that he was the right investor. Like I just kept replying back to him on the email going, oh, my prototype has launched. Oh, we got our first 5,000. Oh, here's our recurring value or recurring revenue. And he was very engaging. Like he would then give me another meeting. He would, you know, um, give me any advice that he would. He was so generous with his advice that I got my mentorship, basically, right? Mm -hmm. The one year that he was rejecting me, I was actually getting my 
not like not funding, but I was getting the mentorship. And then it grew and grew and grew. And then finally, by the time that he funded me, I was ready to scale the business. Yeah. So it was great. The one year was actually what I needed to get there as well. So you and I have talked behind the scenes about imposter syndrome, right? Like you're in a room and and I'll just say it. Most startup rooms are going to be full of men, right? Mm -hmm. But also the fact that you don't, you don't know how to code or don't know how to code as well as, you know, somebody with, with a comm side background. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see too many fashion graduates starting startups these days um, and definitely not without a co-founder. Right. So, yeah. so walking into so many of these like meetup type rooms are different could be, could be an event. Like, do you remember how you felt back then? And what, what was it about that conviction that kind of said, no, I got to keep going. And then, I mean, I mean, there's two layers of that conviction. One is like, you know, you're going to do build Weddingful, what became Weddingful. And the other one is like, I have to have Boris as my investor, right? Like those are two different pieces of conviction, but you're like, no, this must be done. Mm-hmm. I actually did not feel any imposter syndrome until recently, actually. <laughs> um, I blame it on you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. I walked into the room, most of the like Angel Forum, Fusion Forum, um, you know, all those grow conferences. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I was generally the three ladies there, right? Mm. I remember Fusion Forum, there was 150 people and there were three gals. Um, But because from high school days, like Mm. I've always been the only gal from the computer room. So, Mm. and and when I was doing video gaming with mud games, I was the only girl there. You know, if Mm. there was any meetup, I would be the only girl. So the only girl thing didn't bother me. the lack of computer science background always bothered me because it was always that regret. I was like, damn it, if only I uh, oh, anyways. Um, and the conviction was just, I saw this problem, I built it, I really wanted to solve the problem. Actually, it was one of my regret was I should not have picked weddings. Because every investor also told me, and it was one reason why it took so long, was wedding was not a great investable industry. You know, you would get a bride and then nine months later they got their wedding and they're never your customer again. Unless, and I, you're, unless you're Elon Musk is your customer. Yeah. And I would used to make those jokes, right? I would be like 50% of marriages break up anyways. <laughs> but what I didn't know and every but everyone had that objection was that user acquisition was really expensive and every year you have to start from scratch again. Um, and that ultimately became very difficult to scale the start startup. You know, 2010, I would say 2010 to 2012, we were really successful in Vancouver and Toronto. Like Sam said, if you were getting married, you would have been on wedding fall. We were, we had 70 to 80% of the market. Um, but it cost a lot. Like it was always barely break even to just get the bride in and the unit economic was really tight, right? And Boris was the master of it all, right? And he would always coach me. There's a four to one um, ratio, like you want to be 4X on uh, user acquisition. Here's the lifetime value, da, 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 da. So I became as good as it gets when it came to user, you know, acquiring user and really stretching out their LTV, really minimizing the churn and retention. But still, it was still barely break even at the end of each year. And then August come, they all churn and the new year comes. 
And I just wish, man, like, and I wasn't even that passionate passionate about wedding. I was I was a single girl at that point, and it was just that you know sewing wedding dresses that I got there. So I wish I was more open to hearing that feedback, and mm-hmm. you know, possibly solving another industry, which is why it led to my second startup being digital health. I was like, okay, I'm mm-hmm. taking that playbook that I learned, and I'm going to solve a even bigger and more impactful industry, which is health, especially when it comes to chronic diseases, like when you walk out of a doctor's office and they said you had cancer. Mm-hmm. Now what? Like you want that second opinion, you want, you know, global treatment options, like the best of the best. How can I connect that inefficiency? So yeah, I I I wish I learned that quicker. <laughs> so before we jump to you to your second startup, like what I noticed, because obviously Gene and I and even Samson in the background here, we we talk with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, you can always tell because obviously there's a lot of passion there. They talk a lot about you know the, the problem they're solving and and you know the the impact that they've made on their customers and, and change and you know all that stuff's great. Mm-hmm. When I talk to like second and in your case third-time founders, um, along with all the other startups we that didn't come to fruition, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, we learn a lot more of talking about metrics. We talk about things like LTV. We talk about churn. We talk about metrics a lot. Was that something you gained along the way? Like, because maybe of your mentorship with your investors or like, is that something you picked up? Because I think a lot of people that are coming from different backgrounds, especially let's say product people, they love to build a product, but they're not thinking about churn or different things like that. But as you're kind of describing, these things make or break businesses, mm-hmm. right? Like how did you kind of pick that up along the way? And what, and was it something that you, you know, you're still learning from startup to startup, you're learning something new or you just Googled it or it just happened naturally? I mean, Boris is like one of the best when it, when it came to metrics and yeah, it was through his training. Every month we would meet. If I don't send my metrics, you know, there's, he literally canceled the meeting. He's like, no number. <laughs> what are we talking about? So I got really good and and that is the advice that I would give, you know, founders now when I'm advising them is it is about unit economic, right? If you don't understand that it costs you $5 to get a bribe and they stay for 9 months and on average they spend 45 bucks and the category that they spend the most amount is photography and then the photographer costs you 150 bucks to acquire and they spend 2 grand with you. How could you scale? Like, how could you manage that cost efficiently? And where do you know where to spend your energy product-wise, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of founder that I would meet go, oh, yeah, we, we, we're we ready to scale. We know how to scale. And then they don't have the cost down. And they tell you that their biggest channel is organic. You know, then... Then how do you scale organic, first of all, um, in a in a in a predictable, manageable way? And two, you know, what about the cost of the team? What about the cost of the ad budget? What about the cost of business to be running that for 12 months? So without metric, you really can't do a systematic decision-making framework, basically. Mm-hmm. You're just using a founder's instinct or bias to make decision because you really don't see where your biggest challenge is, where your money-making category is, where you could save some costs. So anyways, yeah, long story short, I think it was one of the biggest blessings that I was 
mm-hmm. learning under him. And two, one of my biggest lessons that I'm sharing with everyone who's listening is honestly, it is your metrics is everything. It is your business dashboard. It is it's showing you the biggest opportunity. It's showing you your biggest weakness. It is the true definition of scalability. And is that like a day one thing? Because I, I I know like we, we do also do startup education. I can see entrepreneurs are usually like they're passionate, they're ready to go, and they're go people, right? Yeah. And when you're like, okay, measure like how much your customer costs, how much your customer is worth, and they're like, I have three customers, my cost is my time, right? Like that that's how they kind of start, right? Yeah. Is that the time to start really like holding down like monthly reports, whether it's to whoever's involved or, or people that care about your business? Or like, is the, do you see that there's a point when you're like, okay, now I got to really focus on metrics? You cannot focus on metrics if you only have three paying customer. On average, you need at least 500 for mm-hmm. it to be a significant metrics. That's where I would tell the founder to start pay at, mm-hmm. you know, Take $5,000 out and do the channel of your choice, whatever your target audience is. They might be hanging out on IG or TikTok or Facebook, depending on mm. the person. And then you run 5000 bucks. Hopefully that means 500 at least, you know, data point. Um, and then you see some real number, right? If you have three, you know, it could be a founder's friend. It could be a founder's yeah. sale. Like, those are not metrics. Those are your friend trying to sign up, right? Uh, or your uncle's friend led you to the dealer and the dealer said yes. So by forcing yourself to take out 5000 there's your conviction, right? Do you believe in your business enough to take out 5000 bucks and do yeah. this thing? Two, it is no longer your friends. It is a actual se- segment of user. And you now, hopefully with 5000 at least get, you know, 5,000 click, 500 sign up, and you start to see what's going on. Maybe they don't convert at all. You got some problem here. You got to iterate. Or maybe they start to convert and you now have some number to A-B test. So Mm -hmm. it is that first leap to, all right, I'm facing the music. Here we go. Brand new user. I've never heard of me. There is a slogan. There's a visual. Is that product market fit? Awesome. That's a lot. Of <laughs> no, that's a lot of valuable information there, and I think that those that are listening in, they can take away from it. Especially those that are kind of you know looking to start their own entrepreneurship. Like, mm-hmm. for example, I'm on like I have a small business as well, and so this is like um, very like informative. Like for this me, I'm is, still small scale, but this is usually when I have say you spent your five thousand yet. No, <laughs> there you that's, go. Spend it time with me. To, time to. <laughs> time to bite the bullet. Awesome. So so digital health. You you moved on from wedding full. Yeah. And what what was your second startup? Digital health. So it's called Discover Therapies. Um, my husband was actually doing it. He had a background in pharma sales and he, ironically, he was selling these GI products, Remicade, to a whole bunch of doctors. And then one day, crazy, he had the same disease that he was selling the drug for. Um, which he obviously noticed the same symptom and everything. And the doctors that he was selling into are all the specialists. And so with all that background, he knew that the drug that he was taking, um, while it is a good option, there were better ones coming out um, in the pipeline, as we call it, meaning the drug is being developed in a clinical trial, but not quite out in the market for a patient to experience. 
Um, <clears throat> so then he was in the hospital and, you know, things got crazy for four or five days where he wanted to use one of these um, breakthrough drug that's not quite out in the market. And then as an entrepreneur, of course, I was like, oh, we need to solve this problem. How can patient have the disease but not have the best treatment possible? So then, um, yeah, by then I went, went, wind down, wedding fall. I learned the lesson that wedding is not the industry. Um, and so, I, yeah, I joined his team and we, and then I thought, again, with Boris mentorship, he said, you know, you've learned a lot. You're a great entrepreneur. You have crazy amount of stamina to be doing this for <laughs> seven years. Go and apply yourself in a new industry and, you know, solve a new challenge. So then, yeah, that gave me the confidence because I know nothing about digital health at that point, right? Mm -hmm. I was just selling, you know, dresses and florists and venue for a bunch of, you know, brides around the world. But it gave me that guidance and conviction to go, no, you know a lot about two-sided marketplace. You know now how to scale all these different, um, you know, consumer and B2B. Go apply yourself to this other industry that deserves your attention and love. Mm -hmm. So then I joined my, my, my husband's digital health and I started scaling patient acquisition um, and things like that. Oh, amazing. That's awesome. My only question there, and I've asked this to other entrepreneurs as too, is what is it like starting a company with your partner? <laughs> would, and would you do it again? I would rather eat these spicy noodles. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's its own beast, right? You now, there are pros and cons to everything. You know, it's great to have a trusted partner as your co-founder in some ways that's nice and convenient. But in other ways, you now you're working and living with the same person 24 hours, right? Um, you now blur the lines of work and life. And if you are not compatible, it shows up immediately. So, yeah, it's tough. Some people can never do it. Some people do it and quit in, you know, some people could do it. So, Was there ever a point of a stress because because – both of you are working on the, the company full time. I don't know if you had kids by then, but was there Not this yet. kind of like wandering thought, <clears throat> excuse me, um, of like, hey, we're all in on this as a family. If this doesn't work, like there's no like husband with a second job or, or you know, like, there's no backup, right? Was that was that kind of ever seeping and did it add to the stress of, of as you were building that company? Actually, I, I was wrong when I said not yet. Um, 2016 was when I had my first baby. Oh, wow. So Same I joined time. with our first baby. So the baby was literally puking on my shoulder and mm -hmm. we would be working on this thing together. Um, yeah, we already had a family. And then we had a second kid 20 months after. So basically I had my first baby and the second baby all while running the business for the three year that we did. These are like two kid, second startup, you know, let's do this thing. So, yeah, sorry. Now I, I'm just like traumatized by that. It's all coming back. I like, oh, sorry, I, I brought I back some PTSD <laughs> there. <laughs> just eat the spicy noodles. They'll be fine. Spicy noodles, please. No, I have a question there. Like, because I think a lot of the challenges a lot of people have is generally finding that like work-life balance. And I think it's even more challenging, especially for entrepreneurs that are just starting out their business. Having a family and working with your partner on top of that, like, how did you navigate it? Like, did you have to, you know, 
be on top of like specific routines or responsibilities or did you just kind of you know what was the strategy here gosh there's no strategy <laughs> there was a baby crying it's your turn it's my turn um luckily you know my husband and i are both quite flexible like we're 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 you know we're get shit done kind of people um so because we're both you know skin in the game this is our business and we were fully committed uh, there were none of that kind of distraction like how committed are you are you getting that full-time job or or not we were just both super into it want to solve the problem um and it also helped that there were a whole bunch of these cancer patient or these chronic disease patient that would write us and they would have mm. these really touching story like my daughter just got diagnosed you know, you guys were the only website that provided information we were looking for. We found the treatment option that we needed. Thank you so much. Like that drove you as well, you know, and you're like, oh, just every patient that got what they needed kept you going. And then, yes, there is a crying baby. And then we're <laughs> all trying to not be it like not me. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that that's the trait. Like I was just really heads down, focused solve this problem for the patient, grow this as fast as we can. We just didn't, it didn't matter who was doing more work or less. It was just like, let's get it done. And then was this one funded or did you bootstrap this one? We bootstrapped this one. Um, and I just shared this with another uh, workshop the other day. The first one, I was very much a first-time founder, like you said, right? Barely got past this funding thing. Finally learned my metric, scaled it, learned my lessons slowly. And this time, maybe because there was chip on my shoulder or I now have two babies, let's not fuck around, time is scarce. I, it, we took a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. We went for the biggest deal possible, you know, pharma deals, they were average, you know, million dollar deals because uh, we didn't have time. So we couldn't do right. We couldn't do a mm-hmm. B2B SaaS play where there's 10,000 user. It was let's do enterprise sales cycle where there might be only 20 clients. But if one says yes, it's a million dollar. So then the hour spent is lower, but the revenue was more volatile, but bigger paycheck. So there was decision Number one, decision number two was we immediately went for pay ads for the patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Google ad, Facebook ad, and it was just a matter of, you know, funnel tweaking, which I was really good at. Um, so then that means the head count is lower. Whereas wedding fall, like a first timer, I was like, oh, let's try not to do face bad. Maybe we could put in some SEO and, and organic to lower the cost because it was always about lowering the user acquisition. But then it took five staff, right? Like trying to curate the directory, trying to get user to come in for free. So this time I was like, okay, we only have five staff. I barely want to manage any staff. I will do all the payout on the patient side. You know, what is my budget? 150 bucks per patient. Got it. My husband did all the enterprise sales cycle. He was closing the million dollar deals. We actually didn't even need funding at all for mm. that one. Oh. Yeah. And our team was really small. So that was nice. And it ended up, we, you know, we exited the company within three years, actually, also. Um, and I learned my lesson there, too, because the first one, I was just this oh, mission-focused founder. Like, we don't need to sell this thing. It'll just be a $100 million um, unicorn and then wherever it goes, right? I, I remember 
investor would always go, what's your exit strategy? I was like, we don't need one. You know, I will forever be doing this. This time I was like, no, no, we need an exit strategy. We need the, you know, we need all the right partner um, already in, in as, as, as clients. And then um, through being our client for multiple years, they are going to acquire us. And it ended up that way. So, yeah. Awesome. And then you took a little break, I'm assuming? We took some break because we're not crazy. Oh, we were. And then finally had some sense. Uh, 2019, yeah, took a break. By then, we have two toddlers, which actually was getting harder and harder. Um, yeah, we took a break and started collecting handbags. Weird. As you. my spare time <laughs> hobby, yes. Yes, and this is where we're going to link our other thing is she, Angel has a terrific um, Twitter thread on talking about how she flipped handbags. What was it? Like you put in $200,000 and it came out with 18%? Yeah, so we had an exit. So then my husband and I both took a break. He started investing, you know, day trading, crypto, and I started doing handbags. And uh, it first started just, you know, the, the last two years of, you know, nighttime feeding and all the babies. And I was on IG a lot, right? Um, I don't know how many parents are out there, but when you have a baby, you're you're instantly on your phone a lot because they're like sleeping on you and you can't really move and you don't want to wake up the baby. So then you're on the phone. So I noticed my phone intake went like, and forget the screen time management. I just kept saying, ignore time limit, ignore time <laughs> limit, you know, and I'm on IG. And I remember showing to my husband, oh, I want to be south of France, just like glowing again. And my hair is clean and I actually showered and holding this Birkin bag and my husband going, you could do that. Just close your eyes and get there. <laughs> and I was like, screw closing my eyes and getting there. We had an exit. Let's spend some money. So then I, and then he was like, whoa, 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 like how much are these bags again? So then I started analyzing them. I was like, the bags are 10K. Don't freak out. It's 10,000 USD. But look, someone just sold to someone else for 22000 So this is a money-making investment, not an expense. So he goes, oh, really? Why don't we have a little challenge, right? Like we're a very competitive family. He took 500K. He did his crypto and, and investment. I, to- I was like, I will take 500K as well, and I will invest in handbags. So then I started having my funding and I would do, you know, I started analyzing, pulling, you know, the real, real fashion file, eBay, all these resale sites. And I would track when that Birkin 25 black Togo gold hardware would be listed at what price and how many days it took to sell. And I started having this massive Excel sheet, 6,000 row of data. And that's how I knew that's the price I should buy it at. This is the price I could flip it at. And it was around, yeah, 20% profit margin. And I and and at that point, 20% was a big deal. I know it's not today, but 20%. No, of, it's a big deal today. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. You're beating um, inflation. <laughs> and then, so then, and I get to go to South of France, sit on a yacht, you know, holding my Birkin, which actually never happened, but that was my dream. Because um, obviously COVID hit and nobody was traveling. Um, 
so then, yeah, I was just pulling data, writing Python script, <laughs> having these, you know, scripts on all the resale sites. So I knew, you know, inventory level date to sell. And I would even write script to list. So because I didn't want to deal with the freaking eBay listing anymore. And then anyways, that's how I started flipping handbags at scale. And yes, I started beating hip at that point. Um, my 20% was like 25, 27. But then, of course, he started beating me with crypto last year. And he's now, beating himself now, though. Now, 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 <laughs> he's not doing that so good. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how I started flipping handbags. Sneaker flippers need to be listening to this episode right now. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of that entire scene, though? Because I think with commodities, and it could be purses, could be sneakers, could be toys. I think um, trading cards was really big for a while as well. Yeah. Um, and these are really, really young people, right? Like you got a 13-year-old learning Python for the first time, buying a, buying a bot to, to scrape data, all this stuff. Yeah. Where do you, where do you see, kind of see that entire kind of secondary sale going? It's growing. It's, 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 it's becoming such a big issue um, that the brands have to take notice. It's mm -hmm. taking a big chunk out of their revenue, right? Um, I mean, as you guys are all listening, I'm that kid. Like if I was 13 year old, I'd be doing that, mm -hmm. right? It's just that now I am no longer 13 and I'm still doing it. <laughs> um, but my kid, yeah, I would be telling them to flip anything if they want to buy anything. Don't ask me for the money. You earned it yourself, right? So yeah. it's a legit side hustle, you know, and you, it's, you, you get to, you get to learn a lot, you know, and you get to make money. So I, yeah. I don't see it going anywhere. I think the kids are just going to find more and more money opportunity and they're going to find the next new thing. Maybe it's not sneaker. Maybe it's a banana duck thing. <laughs> it's wherever there is a market. It's supply and demand. This is where my two-sided marketplace background comes in handy, right? Wherever there is demand, you go and, you go and manage supply, you make money. That's I don't, I don't know if I've ever shared my, my startup origin story actually is like, Back in the day, and I think they still do this. There's like electronic boutiques. I think it's GameSpot now. Like jokes aside, it's you know it's it's still a business. And they used to do this thing where they trade in games, mm -hmm. and they'd have promotions. I remember back then was like you could trade in a game that could give them twenty five dollars of value. And I knew that like I think it was a Nintendo DS or Game Boy or whatever it was was one hundred and fifty dollars. So you needed six of these games. To, to trade in for a Nintendo. For the brand new one. And yeah. what I would do is I would take the list, and I think Red Flag Deals or Craigslist had the list of games that were worth $25 to GameSpot at that time. So I would go from Roger's Video to Blockbuster to Roger's Video, buying used games for $10, put them all up, and I had like six to 10 Nintendos that I would sell on Craigslist for retail price. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I'm like, those guys are getting a deal because they're getting it for tax-free essentially. Yep. I get a deal because my margin is still high. I didn't even know it was called margin at that time, by the way. I just knew that there was arbitrage there. Yep. And that's what I would do instead of going to class. Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's if my kid said, hey, mom, I want to go around where I'm passionate and find these opportunity where I can spend 10 bucks, make 25, and I get to iterate my funnel math, which I will surely help them, and make a living based on how good I am at my game. I'd say, 
better than an hourly job that you can't <laughs> iterate and you can't make more. So, yeah, that's amazing. So, so I mean, we've we've buried the lead long enough. Tell us about your latest business. <laughs> yeah. So from the <laughs> handbag flipping game. Um, I met my, I, I met a good friend of mine, Tiffany Black. Um, she was the head of product at Pinterest, and she was the one that checked out my 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 handbag flipping thing uh, obsession, really. And she was like, "You're not making money off this thing? Are you crazy?" Like, sorry, I skipped a little. So I once I had the six thousand entry of Excel sheet, my dashboard, I started sniping bags and flipping them. That part, I'm making money. But then I started sharing content, right? Mm -hmm. I would I would write a blog post. I would share the six thousand row of report. I would pump out these Birkin report. I created um, a color visualizer for people to change color on their Birkin and Kelly, and it was called BanIsland.com. It still is. It's still up there. Not making much money, just a hobby thing. And she was like, "Why are you not making money? Are you crazy?" <laughs> I was like, wait, "Wait, wait, I am all about making money. Don't get me wrong. I grew up making money, but." I don't. I, I. I'm. I'm protecting the handbag. Like it's my. It's my love. Like I. I if I start making money, I'm going to start resenting it. You know. Like sometimes you. It's going to feel different. Yeah. Right? Like, like it you feels lose different. that. You lose that mysticness about it. Yeah. yeah. So then I was like, I want to keep it casual. I want to be able to come in and out of it. So then Ban Island is still, you know, not profitable. It's mostly just content sharing for other passionate community. But then she goes, okay, keep that free. All good with that, but you got to make money with your 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 talent. You're sitting there, Sammy, retired. Like, come on. So then she started telling me about Web three. She was like, "This is where you need to go. This is where 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 the opportunities are. You are perfect for Web three. You're creative. You're building shit. You love breaking rules, <laughs> and you know you're a product founder. You you are like this is floor price. You're analyzing floor price." Um, so anyway, she got me into NFT. She even, you know, show me Solidity versus Rust. I still don't like coding. I was like, no, thank you. I'm not coding. Um, and then I call up my friend, Mac Flavelle, um, ex-founder of Dapper Left and CryptoKitty. I said, okay, so there's something about NFT. Apparently I need to do this. You're the only other guy that I know is an NFT at that point. Now I know everyone in it, but mm -hmm. At that point, he was the only person I can think of. So then I call him out. I was like, is this legit? What am I going? Like, I'm I'm about to dive into this career change, should I? And he said, what? You're available. You're you're thinking about NFT. Join me. So then I joined Big Head Club. Um, and yeah, it's been the craziest rise since learning so much. And should we pause there or should I go straight to the... Go, go straight <laughs> in. <laughs> All right. And so working at Big Head Club for a few months, you know, helped release a few of the NFT. And then, of course, like a true innovator, I noticed there was a problem. You know, most of the in industry or most of the people in NFT are all male. And, you know, there are profile pics and only profile pics at the time. And so I thought, what if there were handbags? What if there were non-profile pick digital goods that you can flip, that you can collect, buy, and sell? So my latest project is called Diamond Handbag, uh, diamondhandbag.club. And you, it's, it's 3D digital handbags. Um, and I'm creating a brand for the next generation. So there's a Roblox version. 
as young as six-year-old, seven-year-old, you could start collecting these digital handbags and flip them and resell them. And then there are IG versions, there's Decentraland version, there are NFT version, which is, you know, pieces of art, animated art, one of one. Um, and then you also can forge and get a physical handbag. So we're basically trying to cover all the channels for you to... So going a long roundabout way, you're finally building the fashion company that you wanted to build <laughs> exactly. that you dreamed of in school. Exactly. Yes. The, the, the dream right after my grad, here I am, digital grad. Full circle. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so tell, tell us a little bit more about this because I think there's, there's like, even though you're, you'd mentioned even in your first second or after your second startup, your husband already was dabbling in, in crypto trading and. And trying and getting into that world, I think a, a lot earlier than even you did. Um, there was like a healthy skepticism, I would say. Yeah. Um, as you entered the space, like for for people that are what I call normal, because I think everybody in here in a round launch knows we talk a lot about Web three. We dabble in NFTs. We throw out words like DeFi and blockchain, and we do this stuff a lot, right? But for for everybody else, like. Where, where do you see the, like, how would you explain the space, I guess, first of all, for them? Um, and and realistically, what is the, what does the entry points look like for them? And I don't mean, like, they all need to become traders. Some will become collectors, and some will just live life like they always have, right? Like, what how would you kind of explain the world that you're now in to, to normies? Yeah. I mean, even when I talk about trading handbags, mm. the normie goes, what? Yeah. <laughs> you buy handbag and you sell them for how much, right? Like yeah. even that is a, a, a faced with a, a level yeah. of skepticism, right? Like even my mom go, what? You're selling handbags for a profit, right? So even that is a bit of a gap. But from there, if you accepted that, if you're okay with the concept of you buying something that were five and tomorrow you sold it at $10 and you make five bucks, from there, the next step is this item is not physical, like it's not tangible, you couldn't touch it, it's a digital file. That's the second leap. And yes, I was also skeptical. When Tiffany mm -hmm. come to me, I was like, you're crazy. No, no, no. Right. Mm -hmm. And it took her and Mac to go, we're not crazy. A digital file, just like a Pokemon card, can be worth 100x. Right. So I started warming up to it. And yes, I was a Pokemon collector as mm -hmm. well. I had my Dragon Ball card. So I was more prime, right? I knew, yeah. yeah, a piece of paper, right? Who who knew? A piece of paper, a card with a picture on it, you know, sure, it's got hologram on it, but it is a piece of card that only costs you a dollar is now 10,000, 100,000, right? Um, so a digital file that costs someone, let's say, a dollar to make, somehow worth 100,000, maybe a million. How does that work? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I it's supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. If there was a, if there's 100,000 people lining up for this $1 Pokemon card, somehow one person in that lineup going, I'll pay a million, give it to me, I'll, I'll pay a million. You sell it to that guy in 78 spot and you go, all right, here you go. Like, you know, the top price win. And then they bought it, right? Just like auction of a piece of art, right? Like, why is that Monet worth millions of dollars? Why not $78, which is the cost of paint? Like, if you look at cost, 
that's not how something's value is derived. It's the market. It's the demand, right? Like it's not. Well, how much does the paint cost? How much is the Canva? Why is a digital file worth more than a dollar? Because it's not about the production cost. It's not about the material cost. It's the community around it. It's the marketing around it. It's the long lineup. The cultural. It's, value. it's the highest bidder wins, and the highest bidder is willing to pay a million, and therefore this thing is currently market rate at a million. That's why the Birkin bag is worth 200K because this Singapore lady just put up her hand and say 200, 200K, I'll buy it. And then all of a sudden that bag is worth 200K. So it's easier to explain to the handbag trading com- um, community because they already got it and they already pay this crazy amount for a handbag. Um, and now... When I explain it to the younger kids who are flipping Roblox wearable, I just saw on Roblox there was a smiley face, winky face thingy, and it was worth three hundred thousand Robux. Like it's wow. it's not news to them, you know. They may not be able to afford the three hundred thousand Robux for that smiley face, but they know it's out there, and a friend has it, and they it's cool, and they want it. So I think from all those different references, right? Whether you are a sneaker lover and you understand flipping a pair of shoe that probably worth 20 bucks to make and it's worth more than that to a handbag, to a piece of card, to a digital file. It's just this culture, this cult, this community um, that's driving the, the resale market and therefore that's the value. So that's how I would explain it. Um, and that's how I understand it. So, thanks. While our building literally burps out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. We have no idea what that was. It's the dock. It's the it's dock. The, that, that's that's really cool. Are your are your kids on Roblox already? As as crazy as it sounds, I'm the parent that's getting my that, that's getting my kids on Roblox. So every every parent them. is trying to stop their kids from. Spending so much screen time, and you're like, no, I need you to Roblox A/B test this. I they are spending so much screen time, which just like every parents, I'm like, spend less. But if you are gonna go on device, let's go on Roblox together. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I have equipped them with an avatar, and they're <clears throat> carrying the diamond handbag bag. So unique marketing strategies. <laughs> Put it on and run around for two hours, will you? <laughs> Awesome. Um, yeah. And so I guess from here on, like, we are kind of approaching our episode time. Like, and All right. I'm glad that we were Didn't able to. Didn't even need any of this thing. <laughs> we'll have some time afterwards. But um, we always like to ask this question to all of our guests because I think it really tells a lot about each of our guests' personalities, their journey, and kind of what they learned as well. Mm-hmm. So if you are able to, let's say, you are creating your next company. Another one, all Another right. One. I'll get there. <laughs> With everything that you've gathered so far from your first three, um, who would you decide to have on your team with you? So you can choose up to two to three members to build this with you. Um, they can be completely fictional. They can be real people that you know. Um, they can also be celebrities or maybe dead historians. Pretty much anyone or anything is a viable prospect. Why didn't I read the piece of paper until the final one? Because I'm completely unprepped here. Um, We also asked every guest this question. Damn it. My memory is not so good after two kids. 
This is a tough one. Um, there's no obvious answer. Um, I, I'm really happy with the team I got, which is my first answer was like, I'm, I'm good with what I have right now and I'm super happy with it. Um, well, immediately I'm thinking a team of three because that is what has been successful. Mm -hmm. um, definitely no more solo found founder for me ever again. Um, damn. Well, just to jog your memory, people. in the past we've had people bring, I think, um, fictional characters. Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds was a popular oh, choice. Yes, Ryan Reynolds. Um, a lot of people like Bill Gates, Einstein, Elon Musk. There's your, you know, there's your general historians. Um, some people have had, you know, where there's religious leaders or, or family members. Uh, that's also been around. Current partners as well. Current partners like as founders, well. Founders, co-founders. I think one person like said Bugs Bunny or something. <laughs> like, I mean, we'll all take anything, right? I mean, it could be a lame answer, but I honestly, what is in my mind right now is my current team. You know, I love working with Mac. He's awesome. He's so <clears throat> creative. He comes up with all these game mechanic and have so much. He's just so creative that... Absolutely. Like if I could steal him from Big Head Club and join my company, which we would never say no yes to, that would be one. Um, yes, Mac, if you're listening, we're making handbags. Uh, two. I would love to work with Boris again, maybe because we talked about him so much. Um I'll give his kid some Roblox back and maybe I'll get him involved. Yeah. Like you guys got to up these guys' fashion games anyway, right? Yeah. He has just been such a, yeah, he's just been such a great mentor that it sucks that I'm no longer one of his portfolio company. So maybe, you know, bringing Yet. him back would be, would be amazing. Um, but I would say those are, you know, two people that I immediately think of. You know, that I'm learning so much on the creative, um, innovative side with Mac. And then the person who taught me how to scale businesses, think about how to make decision. Those are probably the right partner, the, the best partners. So, yeah, Mac, if you're listening to this, we just like, you know, that you beat out Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, Bill Clinton, other any other name in history. So, you know, think it through. Yes. You do need a new handbag, bro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much, Angel, for your answer yeah, and for joining for having us today. Me. Of course. It's and been fun. Yeah. And um, if, you know, any of our listeners or uh, viewers wanted to connect with you, are you open to that? Like, is yeah. there any place you want to connect DM's to? open. Um, I'm on almost all channel now. Twitter, IG, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, probably the easiest. Yeah. yeah. What What's what's your, uh, what's Diamond Handbags handle? On. On Twitter. Gosh. They're all different. Um, <laughs> you have too many. Uh, I'm trying to give you that plug here. <laughs> oh, yes. At Diamond Handbag Club, I want to say. All right. And so uh, when do we get whitelisted listeners? Uh, yeah, it's already open. It's it's called, we, we have a VIP list. Actually, come to the website, diamondhandbag.club. And then there's a button, join VIP list. Put your name, email, or your wallet address down. It's based on the order, so the sooner you do it, you're the, the you know earlier of the line you'll be, and that's where you'll get access to all the drops, the Roblox, the the IG version, the NFT version. Yep. Sweet. So you heard it here first. That's our first whitelist on this podcast. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Um, as we wrap things up, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well. Launch Academy HQ for, for all things launch. We're going to have more and more episodes as we, we roll in. Maybe we'll bring in Mac. Um, let's, let's I don't get know, him convince, talking handbags. Convince him to, to get some handbags <laughs> and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, you want to, you want to end it off for us, Jade? Yeah. Well, Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of season two. We are really excited about our next episode, so please stay tuned. We will also make sure to include all the information as well as social handles and the website that Angel has listed um, in our description as well. So make sure to check those out. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Benefit.